According to the National Wellness Institute, there are seven domains of wellness, with one of them being spiritual wellness. Spiritual wellness is the search for and understanding of the meaning of life and finding purpose. Wellness Continuing offers spiritual tools and resources to better understand the meaning of life and your true nature. From a podcast on consciousness in the afterlife, to blog posts, as well as healing music with binaural beats and more. The ancient Chinese believed that the heart was the center of human cognition, and therefore the heart and the mind are one. Wellness Continuing. Elevate your heart-mind. Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Mark Gober is an American author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, which was awarded the IPPY Award for Best Science Book of 2019. He's also the author of An End to Upside Down Living, An End to Upside Down Liberty, and now An End to Upside Down Contact. And he is the host of a podcast called Where Is My Mind? Additionally, he serves on the board of the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the School of Wholeness and Enlightenment. Previously, Mark was a partner at Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley and worked as an investment banking analyst with UBS in New York. He has been named one of IAM's Strategy 300, the world's leading intellectual property strategists. Mark graduated from Princeton University, where he wrote an award-winning thesis on Daniel Kahneman's Nobel Prize-winning prospect theory and was elected a captain of Princeton's Division I tennis team. Today, Mark and I discuss his newest book, An End to Upside Down Contact, talking about cosmic cultures and how it integrates with spirituality. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, lots has changed since we last talked. Uh, and that's an understatement, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you were busy writing your latest book, An End to Upside Down Contact, which goes along with your other, the other series of books. Um, I was actually a little surprised that you did touch on this, but I'm really grateful that you did. So what we're referring to, of course, is cosmic cultures. And that is a topic that, you know, I'm, I'm on the fence about because there's not as much evidence or validation that can be provided, but there are a lot of stories. And as you so wonderfully put in your research in the book, um, there it goes back to ancient cultures and ancient wisdom talks about beings from from the sky. Um, so tell me a little bit actually of why you decided to write a book about contact. Hmm. It's a subject that interested me when I started my research path about six years ago, when I started to look at consciousness, the idea of non-human intelligence came up all over the place, whether it was in near-death experiences where people were encountering beings of light or other spiritual beings, or people with past life memories were talking about having past lives on other planets. This sort of thing came up a lot. Um, as to why I decided to write a book about it, I really don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can't explain why or how these books come up. I just became really interested after my the previous book, An End to Upside Down Liberty, came, up, came out in the fall of 2021. And I didn't know I was going to write a book about contact next. I mean, although in the, in the Liberty book, which talks about politics and economics, I, I integrate metaphysics. And at one point in there, I talk about the idea that there 
it seems to be evidence for non-human intelligence. And I basically asked the question, well, if we're going to think about political theory, we need, we need to also consider the possibility that our political and power structures are being influenced by these other intelligences. So maybe the idea was there a little bit. I didn't explore it too much in that book. But then after the Liberty book came out, I started looking more deeply into the abduction phenomenon, which I had read about a little bit and heard about. But as I looked into it more and more, I realized it was a whole area that was really important. And the fact that it had been studied by John Mack, who was the head of psychiatry at Harvard and a Pulitzer Prize winner, he concluded that the people with these allegations were generally not psychotic and something very real was happening. And when I combined it with a lot of the ancient accounts that you were alluding to, I realized that it deserved its own book uh, because it's really, it's expanding in terms of one's worldview. That's the best way I can put it. As I researched the book, it made me open up even more to possibilities about our existence and who we are and why we're here. So then I realized I just had to write another book about it. Well, I'm glad you did. Um, it makes me think of uh, Laura Powers, who I believe was your sort of breakthrough medium. You heard her interview, and that's the person that started getting you thinking that maybe psychic phenomena could be real. I'm correct, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, Laura Powers. So I watched an interview uh, on her a while back. Um, so lovely, so authentic. And uh, she actually talks about the difference between extraterrestrial and interdimensional. She also talked, um, I thought this was really intriguing, about an experience at like a nightclub um, where she saw these two men who were exceptionally tall. Their appearance stood out quite a bit. Um, she felt that there was no empathy, you know, through the heart. She just didn't feel a lot of empathy. Um, their behavior was odd. Um, they kind of came up to her and just stood next to her, but with their back against her back and just very strange, like in a non-crowded space. So she just talks about all these little behavioral indicators to her that something wasn't right. And perhaps they were not maybe human in origin, which is so far, like far out there, but she seems, she's so sincere and authentic. I thought, okay, I'm, I'm open. I want to hear more. So, um, tell me then about with your research. You talked about uh, extraterrestrial and interdimensional. So can you explain the difference with sure. that? That's a good point. So the reason the book's called An End to Upside Down Contact is I was looking at the contact phenomenon in the broadest sense, meaning human contact with other intelligences. And what those intelligences are is a big question, and there might be a big variety. And that's where I come out on this, is that there are many different species and just types of beings. So there might be some beings that are human-like in that they're purely physical, but they exist on other planets and maybe they have different genetics, so they appear to be different, but they're purely physical beings in the way that humans are. And there might also be beings that are not of this dimension, but can come in and out so they can appear to us. So that might be like more like a spirit type being something along the lines of what's encountered in a near-death experience, although that just might be one type of interdimensional being. So it's what I always come back to with this is that we are so limited as humans in terms of what our eyes can see and actually perceive. And we base our view of reality generally on what we can actively perceive. So that limits us to what our eyes show us and what our other senses show us, and also what's reported to us by our education system and the media and so forth. So that is really a limited view. What if there's stuff beyond what we're told or what some people even know about? And what's, what if there's stuff beyond our perceptual abilities? Right. 
what about then the ancient cultures that talked about these light beings or star beings that they encountered? Can you just, I mean, there's so much history, but if you can just touch on some of them to give us a bit of more context. Sure. Well, there's ancient artwork, like cave art, where the images appear to be of non-human entities. And um, another example that people often point to is some of the biblical stories, like Ezekiel's wheel, the, the vision that Ezekiel had fiery chariots in the sky with creatures that he described. So if we look back at a lot of these ancient mythologies or what some would call mythologies, they could be construed from this perspective as, oh, human beings were encountering non-human intelligences who just seemed to be so far advanced that we called them gods. But in fact, they were, you know, they were just advanced species. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, we see that all the time in the documentaries uh, going back, trying to find um, the uh, ancient uh, astronaut theories and whatnot. Yeah. Um, yeah. So very interesting. What I found extra curious was, uh, for example, in Native American spirituality and lore, they do talk about interdimensional beings as well. You talked about um, the Hopi Indians, for example, um, and the whole Palladian type of beings. Yeah. That there's a connection and that they have actually taken on some of their behavioral traits and, and, and incorporated into their culture. Talk a bit about that. Yeah, and this is a common theme that we see in places all over the world. I believe it's the Dogon tribe in Africa that talks about the people from Sirius, uh, the star cluster Sirius. And, and the allegation is that they said this before humanity generally knew that it even existed. And if that's true, then that means that maybe they did get some intelligence from elsewhere. But the theme, whether it's the Hopis or the Dogons or other people around the world, is that there were beings that came. They might have different names that they called them, the star people, the sky gods, or actually specific names that they give, like Quetzalcoatl is one in, in Central America, um, that there were beings that came and taught people things. And they, they got knowledge about how to live based on what the beings told them. And for me as a researcher, I think like any one of these cases, is not so compelling on its own. It's the fact that there are so many of them. And when you combine it with the current accounts that people are talking about of their contact experiences, it all seems to line up. Yeah, and that that's my thinking as well. That's why this book, I mean, you did such thorough research and it really pieced things together because, I, you know, you hear things in the media, you see things in the news and you just get the bits and pieces. And then you get interpret personal interpretation and sometimes misinformation. So you really yeah. did a great job in piecing it all together and creating that that bigger picture. Um, so we t I just talked about Palladians, but I know there's a whole list of, of names that are very popular in, in our culture. Um, can you just go through that quickly, just uh, because that's something probably the audience is going to be more familiar with? Sure. I will name the ones that I hear of, and I don't like subscribe to any one theory about them. Sure. I just hear people who channel these beings or claim they yeah. have accounts encounters with them. So Pleiadian is one, um, Arcturian, um, Zeta Reticuli is one that people talk about. Then there are different species that are sometimes associated with these clusters, like reptilian beings, um, insectoid beings, that's often reported, gray beings. And then I, you also hear of, of different claims that there are actually some of these beings on other planets within our solar system. And maybe some of the beings, like they hop from planet to planet, but they might come from the Pleiades. They might come from a certain place, but they end up having experiences on all these planets. To me, a lot of this is very speculative, but it's it comes up a lot. 
Sure does. Yes. And that, that's what I hear the most. Um, so it's, it's just hard to figure out what could be valid and what maybe is, is just um, either exaggeration or just personal, you know, personal interpretation, which I mean, there's nothing wrong per se, but it just, it doesn't validate the veracity of those claims. So I'm thinking too, how does that, let, let's kind of incorporate that with spirituality because I can certainly believe personally that um, there are different uh, advanced levels of humanity um, on other planets. And I can believe that there are interdimensional beings, so advanced spiritual beings that have some kind of like that are, are existing on some level. So the, I, I do believe that there's levels to our existence. Um, but I, like, so do you think they all have souls? Are we all, is this the one mind? Are we all from the one mind? It's a really good question, which I think about a lot. Um, my my worldview is that we are part of an interconnected field of consciousness. So at some level, these beings, whoever they are, whether they're interdimensional or actually just purely physical from other planets, that, that we're interconnected. So there's an essence of them that is part of us too, even though we are separate to some degree. Now, whether or not they have the same kind of soul structure that a human has, it gets to a question like when, when a human being has a near-death experience, they encounter other intelligences and sometimes have a life review where they relive their whole life. And then a question arises like, would these other beings have a similar death dying experience? Or, or maybe it's both, like maybe these beings are involved in, in actually moderating our dying experience. Um, one of the cases that John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist who uh, studied abduction cases, he he has a book called Abduction, written in 1994, where he goes through like psychiatric level case studies on all the people that some of the best cases that he talked to. And one of the women seemed to have guides from lifetime to lifetime who were alien, so they were somehow involved in this person's life um, in a way that's like almost almost like a guardian. And we get that sense from some of the near-death experience accounts too. When people encounter a being of light, they'll say, well, this being's been with me throughout time. This is a being that I know. So if they're involved in our dying process and maybe even within our reincarnation process, let's just say they, as in some of these beings, then do they have that process as well? Do they die in the same way that we do? I don't know if there's any evidence for it. I don't know how this works. It makes me think of some things that I have heard because I can only go on what, you know, the rumor mill tells me. I've heard that abductions can potentially be your relatives that are extraterrestrial or interdimensional coming mm -hmm. for you to, to connect, to reach out. Um, I know there's a lot of negative experiences associated with it and trauma, just like with uh, near-death experiences. So there's such a wide range. Um, I mean, abduction is a whole book in itself, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a huge topic. And I've heard yeah. that as well. I've heard that theory. And it might be that not all abductions are equal, that some of them are more benevolent, even though they're scary. The beings are coming from other planets where maybe you have a soul relationship and there's something they're doing because maybe you have a soul level mission to come to this to Earth and they're helping. And then other in other cases, it does seem to be a bit more nefarious. At least that's the impression that people give when they come back, where they were operated on genetic material was extracted, sperm and eggs, maybe they were inseminated artificially, maybe they, a hybrid being was created using their genetics. This is even what John Mack from Harvard was saying, comes up over and over again. And the people don't always feel that that's a benevolent process. So it might be that there's a mixture. 
that's it depends on the beings like in the same way that on this planet we have some humans that have very benevolent intent and others who are more psychopathic you could have that within a certain species of an interdimensional being or an uh, uh an interplanetary being a being from another galaxy even yeah I, I just want to make a brief mention of this but you did spend some time talking about the contrast of dark and light and good and evil and I think it was very um, intelligent to include the fact that we need to accept that there is both. Um, it doesn't mean that live in fear of evil or the darkness, but I think it's it's um, very realistic to know and accept that it does exist. There's there's dark and light. I wanted to talk about. Um, Another theory that I heard, so William Buhlman, the famous um, out-of-body experiencer, and he's a, he teaches courses at the uh, Monroe Institute. Now, so he throws everything on its head. So his theory is that abductions could potentially also be out-of-body experiences that have been misinterpreted because a lot of the process that people describe really coincides with the out-of-body experience. Now, I'm not trying to deny the abduction experience whatsoever. It's just another theory and another way of looking at things. But it also then makes me think of, which I learned in medical Qigong, which I trained in several years ago, is that the concept of bilocation hmm. and shape-shifting, which is something you also talk about. Yes. Yeah, so this notion of, of what are abductions, and John Mack struggled with this as well because he talk to many people who have these reports, and some of them might not have left their body. He did find that. And some of them did appear to be missing, physically missing. So there might be a combination where some are more like out-of-body experiences. Um, I mentioned in the book, Dr. Rick Strassman's work on the psychedelic DMT, dimethyltryptamine, where he, he was at the University of New Mexico, and it was uh, injecting people with the psychedelic intravenously. And they were in the room with him and the researchers, and yet their consciousness was elsewhere and was having experiences sometimes that very much resembled what you would call an abduction. So John Mack became very interested in that research because Rick Strassman went into this looking to understand DMT as a psychedelic and what it does to the body. He wasn't expecting that people were going to encounter beings. He didn't know about abductions when he went into this, and yet somehow their consciousness went elsewhere, which is sounds similar to an out-of-body type experience. So there might be an element of that. Um, in the book, I also talk about a remote viewer named John Vivanco, who was remote viewing the firebombings of Dresden in World War II. And his experience became essentially a bilocation, as you're describing it, where he was physically there. And in his body here on earth in the present time, he claims he had burn marks that went away. Uh, because he was, when in his remote viewing, his consciousness was literally back at this time and was in Dresden and was being burned. Uh, so what all this seems to suggest is that it's possible that even though our body might not leave, if our consciousness leaves, that can still have an effect on the body. And that also aligns with some of the research on reincarnation and children with past life memories studied at the University of Virginia, over 2,500 cases. Sometimes the children have birthmarks or physical defects that align with what happened in the previous life. Like they might have died in a certain way and they might have a scar or birthmark that corresponds to where they were had a gunshot wound or something. Um, in my first book, An End Upside Down Thinking, I show a girl who had a very abnormally shaped leg. It looked like it had, it had been tied up in ropes. That was the natural shape where there were indentations uh, where the rope marks would have been. And the previous life she claimed to have had, it was a person who actually died in that manner. 
all this is to suggest that maybe, you know, like what you're alluding to, that what happens to our consciousness might not be happening to us physically in the traditional sense, but it impacts us physically and therefore does matter. It makes me think of Carrie Mullis, the chemist that you refer to, calls abductions and, and the related uh, subject uh, multidimensional physics. So to quote, anthropology at a level we don't quite understand <laughs> yet. So I thought that was really brilliant. Yeah, Nobel Prize winner. He yeah. claims to have encountered a glowing raccoon in the woods, and then he experienced the classic phenomenon of missing time. So he reappeared, doesn't know what happened. Um, flashlight was missing, I believe. There were some weird things. Um, so he he said, look, there are lots of accounts like this. They're what science calls anecdotal, but we can't dismiss them. It happened. He said, I can't put this into a lab. And this notion of anthropology at another level is really fascinating because it suggests that there's just interaction with beings from all over we seem to be ignorant of it generally in society, but we're being interacted with and it's probably been going on for a long time. Right. And then if we want to go into the science, Dean Radin did an interesting experiment with Swami Veda. Yes. Tell me about that interesting <laughs> yes. circumstance. <laughs> so he was doing an experiment where um, he was asking this, this high level Swami to impact light with his mind. And when he, when he went into Swami Veda went into a, like a meditative state and Dean Radin, the researcher and others in the room basically went like their, their minds were out of it during that period. And they snapped back to it. So something was off about their consciousness while the Swami was impacting allegedly the light beam. And the statistics show that at the time that, um, everyone was mentally out of it, uh, the light beam was altered by this guy's mind, which is in alignment with what people report when they encounter some of these beings. It's, it's known as being switched off. So something is off, like they're mind controlled. And Swami Veda said, well, he went to basically another level of consciousness where he went into his heart at that time. And it might be that these beings who are more advanced are able to do things with their consciousness that alter ours, alter our perceptual abilities because they're much more advanced. And this also touches on the, the notion of shape-shifting, which you mentioned, is that the beings sometimes, the reports that they like their face changes. They go in and out of looking like a human and looking like something else. So all of these ideas point to the, to the hypothesis that some of these beings are more advanced. And because they're more advanced, they can manipulate and alter reality in ways that we can't understand. And part of that includes an ability to alter our perception of reality. I'm intrigued by the fact that some of the hypothesis is that they've come to advance our civilization. And that's been the theory all along that they come and they help us jump to, a, a, you know, maybe skip a couple of evolutionary levels, um, and, and to to improve our cultures. But right now, the world's in a place of continued chaos. So I don't know if I don't know if we're just not getting the memo. Uh, I think many people are turning to spirituality or opening themselves up or going deeper into their religious beliefs in sort of North American society, at least, you know, we're starting to realize what's important, take stock of our lives. There's a lot more flexibility when it comes to working and work life. People want to have more time with their families, more leisure time, things like that. I mean, that seems to be the common thing people are, are talking about and embracing. So I do see some improvement in that regard, but we're still in quite a state in the world. So 
do you think that these beings are going to continue to try and support us or help us advance? Or do you think they might just turn around and be like, you know what, guys? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> Still not. <laughs> well, my hypothesis is that there are different species of beings and different types of beings within the species that have different intentions and maybe agendas for what they want on the planet. And maybe that's part of what we're seeing. There might be some beings that are benevolent and want to help us evolve and others that want to see more chaos. And ultimately, and this gets to what you were mentioning about dark light, good, evil. Ultimately, at the highest level, it's all for evolution. At least that's how I theorize it. Sure. So chaos in some ways is uncomfortable. And we could say, oh, this is terrible because there's so much suffering, X, Y, and Z. And at the same time, we could say, well, that's helping us recognize our flaws. And we're able to then transcend them and transmute whatever darkness existed. So we might have a combination of all this happening. And then there's a notion that I talk about in the book of um, an intergalactic federation, which is many people talk about it. And I mentioned some of the remote viewers at the Farsight Institute, which do all kinds of blinded experiments um, with remote viewers. And they often encounter a galactic federation in many of the things that they're trying to remote view. And what uh, Courtney Brown, who is an Emory professor who does this remote viewing uh, management on the side, he said that what, what, they, what the remote viewers see about the intergalactic or galactic federation is that they are benevolent, but they want us to evolve on our own. So their intervention is moderate um, and they want us to voluntarily make the right decisions. So they're only going to intervene so much. And that might be part of it as well is that maybe there are forces that won't ever let things get too bad. It could get pretty bad. They're going to monitor it. But part of the reason for that is they want us to learn on our own. And maybe there are karmic reasons for that. Like if you interfere too much, um, and maybe that could be negative for them. These are all just theories that are out there. Yeah, I, and I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's funny, it, it aligns with the idea of, um, you know, we, we should never allow someone to have too much power over us. So, you know, a good teacher, mentor, or support system allows us to learn and grow on our own with guidance. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what that sounds like. And it also seems to align with the broader metaphysics that we hear in near-death experiences and other types of transcendent states, where people say that we're here to evolve, and the ultimate reality is fundamentally benevolent. And if you believe that it's fundamentally benevolent, like that's the nature of consciousness, and yet we have, we could see lots of evil that's happened throughout human history, that has been permitted to some degree. So it would be consistent if there, that if there were other beings that maybe they're not the full field of consciousness, they're just higher level beings than a human, that they might take on those characteristics as well as benevolent, but also not intervening all the time and not stopping us from stubbing our toe because we might need that to learn. Right. Yeah. I hear that. Yeah. This, uh, this is so fascinating because on the, on the surface, especially using some of the terminology that we've talked about in this interview and that you mentioned in your book, it just, it can turn some people off or turn them away because they think, geez, like, what are you saying? Right. Do, have you had any uh, feedback around your book, like either positive or not so positive? It's interesting. I, I don't hear from all that many people, so I'm going to go from a few data points. Sure. Uh, some people say it's, it's their favorite book that I've written, that it was the most interesting to them. Um, other people thought that some of the dark parts were too hard to read and they had to skip over certain parts because they just didn't want to dive into that. Um, I haven't heard that much else, actually. It's only been a few months, though. Right, right. Oh, and I'm sure more people will read it and give more feedback. Um, yeah. 
listen, the dark parts were necessary. I mean, it was, it was a tough pill to swallow. Yes. But you did your due diligence when, when you, when you completed your research. I mean, it was necessary to, to mention that. And, and it was a very well-rounded book Thank in you. my opinion. Yeah. Thank you. I think it's important to just acknowledge the nature of reality for what it yes. is. And I sometimes see this notion of spiritual bypass in the spiritual community where it's like, well, I want to look at the love and light part, but then the other stuff I'd rather just ignore and act like it doesn't exist. And it's easy to latch on to the spiritually transcendent experiences of when someone has an NDE and comes back and they say it's all unconditional love. And the, the problem with that, I mean, there's a lot of good to that, to learn that that seems to be the fundamental nature of reality. And there are dimensions of existence that are like that. But that can lead to a naivete where we overlook the reality of the world that we live in, that it's not all unconditional love within the physical dimensions that we're in. We, to deny that would just be to deny reality. So that's another reason I wanted to incorporate that, that we have to accept that these things exist and acknowledging that they exist can help us transcend them. I think by ignoring certain things, then they can fester in the same way that in our personal spiritual evolution, we want to be able to look at our own trauma and darkness and shadow within. We have to go into that to, in order to cleanse it and transmute it. I think on a collective level, we have to acknowledge that both on this planet, but also interdimensionally that there's darkness. So it's like not getting sucked into it, just acknowledging that it, it exists and therefore we can figure out how to transcend it. Absolutely. Very well said. Um, I know that you're involved with yoga and I'm just curious, how is that practice going? Have you incorporated any other practices within that? If you can explain uh, what type of yoga you do practice. Sure. Well, the way I think about it is I really like the, the yogic tradition's view on spiritual development. They talk about different pathways, which I've consolidated into four pathways. And one is the pathway of wisdom, uh, selfless service, devotion and energy practices. So that's how I look at things is what am I doing in those four areas? So in, in the terms of wisdom, I'm constantly learning whether it's about things in the physical world or metaphysically. I'm, that's where I spend a lot of my time. And selfless service, for me, a lot of that is writing these books. And like I left my job to do this and I was in a very stable career. And now I'm uh, writing these books, which it's just a different path, but yeah. I, I want to get the information out there. So that's how I practice it. Although there are many ways to practice selfless service and it can be little things too, in terms of like interacting with a cashier at the store, just like being a kind person. Um, devotion is the third. Some people engage in things like prayer or dancing or, uh, mantras. Um, I don't do quite as much of that for me, at least in my current state, it's, it, I manifest that through gratitude. Um, some people talk about this notion of like divine love, which I guess if we haven't experienced an NDE, like it's, it's just an abstraction, but it's the idea of having appreciation for everything and that acknowledging that we're interconnected. So to me, that's more of just a mental gesture as I practice it. And then fourth, which is energy. Um, when we last talked, I was probably doing like lots and lots of meditation. There was a period when I was doing five-ish hours a day, depending on the day, not consecutively. I would do like one to two hour segments. Um, since then, I, I haven't been doing quite as much. I definitely do meditate when I feel like I need to. Um, I also do some Qigong practices, which I probably was doing intermittently when we last talked. There's some good guided videos that I do with that. But I would say that my, my current practice of those four areas is much more heavily on the wisdom sector of it. I, and I don't, I think 
for each of us, it might differ in terms of just like our soul makeup and different times in life might require different things. I'm much more in like the knowledge acquisition and trying to integrate it into my worldview. And the reason for that is that like I wrote my first book, my worldview was totally changed on the fundamental nature of reality. Like consciousness doesn't come from the brain. The brain is more like an antenna. The brain filters consciousness and actually obscures the broader reality. Like that was so mind blowing for me. And then that's, started to integrate and I became desensitized to it. And I'm like, okay, that's just whatever. Um, it's not a big deal anymore. Those ideas and psychic phenomena, surviving bodily death. And then when, when COVID hit and everything in the world changed, I started to look more at current events and that led me to look more at the light dark, which I had been exposed to a little bit, but it, it made me want to reconcile. Like, how could it be that you have people with certain spiritual views who then differ very greatly on views about things happening in the world? about any different issue it, that perplexed me. How can that happen? You have such a fundamentally similar worldview, but then very different. And so it's maybe want to explore like what are the different ways in which we acquire knowledge and the ways in which we develop individually. I often reference the philosopher Ken Wilber, who has explored many of these ideas over his career. And he talks about lines of development, the idea that as a human, we develop in different ways. And those different lines are relatively independent of each other. So to simplify, there are many lines of development, but he talks about waking up, cleaning up and growing up. And that's resonating with me more and more these days. So waking up is the idea that we, we acknowledge our spiritual nature and sometimes even have a physical experience of that, of being one with everything. People have a physical, like an actual spiritual awakening. So that's the waking up path but there's cleaning up and growing up. So you could be highly awakened, but not, you haven't done the cleaning up and the growing up. So the cleaning up is the trauma work, the healing and growing up to be is like, is maturation, acknowledging reality for what it is, not hiding from the darkness um, and acknowledging that this stuff is real, um, that it's not all love and light and integrating that into our being, acknowledging the way the world actually works, not the way that we, we would hope that it actually, that it works. That's a different line of development. So it's made me like on an individual level, want to grow in new ways because most of what I was focused on initially was the waking up and to some extent cleaning up. And that doesn't, I haven't given up on those, but I realized this growing up area is very distinct. And there's a lot of the spiritual world that hasn't focused as much on that because it's almost like there's such a focus on achieving those transcendent states that one can easily ignore uh, the way the world actually works. And it's not what's presented to us by the mainstream media or by the education system. That gives us a sliver. There's a lot more behind it if you dig into it. So well put. And I, I totally hear you on that. With my own long-term awakening, I noticed too that, you know, you can't, you can't live in that transcendent state all the time. You, we have to come back at grounded into the world right. and affect the world, our lives and the lives around us. And then society as a whole, the society we're a part of, we need to get involved with those kinds of things and apply those spiritual principles in action, in reality. Yeah, I hear yeah, you. That's well said because the, the exclusively waking up path, it's important, but when it's done in isolation without regard to the physical world that we're in, undeniably, it's almost like an escapism. And to me, it's, it's irresponsible because if, if you're at that level of spiritual understanding to not apply it to the world is a real loss. Um, and you're reminding me now of, of one of my favorite 
teachings from Dr. David Hawkins, who I reference in a lot of my books. He was a well-known psychiatrist, like highly regarded in New York, and then had the spiritual awakening and left society and then wrote books about enlightenment. And he talked about Ramana Maharshi, another great Indian sage, who said, the world that we see doesn't exist. And Hawkins would say, yes, Maharshi was right. At the level of consciousness at which he was operating, which was this totally transcendent state, highly awakened, he was right that the world that we see doesn't exist. But what Hawkins said is that there are many people in the world who are not perceiving reality that way. They're perceiving the day-to-day -day suffering. And Hawkins said that it would be a spiritual error to deny the suffering of the everyday world just because at one level the world doesn't exist. So to me, that helps to reconcile these two states of reality. One is the transcendent and one is the physical world that we're in undeniably. They go together, and if they're divorced from one another in either direction, it's problematic. So for me, I started off as someone who was agnostic, atheistic, didn't think there was anything to a spiritual dimension, and that changed for me starting around six years ago. And that takes you oh, sometimes away from the physical world. And if you go too far in that direction, you can deny the physical, whereas before I was basically denying the spiritual. And the integration is what's necessary. Absolutely. Um, and I just want to add to, like you said, even just being kind to the cashier or anyone you come across day to day, those small gestures of kindness on, in and of itself is already changing the world because you're, you're transferring that, that heart, that kindness to someone else. And you never know if that's just going to lift someone up. You never know what you say, especially something kind, how that can just make a difference in someone and they may never even forget it. And that resonates with the messages from life reviews. When people have a near-death experience, they relive their whole life and they become the people that they impacted. They often get to feel what it was like to be that person that they never even realized they had such a positive impact on. I just heard an interview the other day of a woman who had a near-death experience and she relived an event where she was, uh, she was a barista, I believe, and one of, one of the customers came up and she ended up being really nice to that customer. She felt that something was off. And in the life review, she realized that that person was suicidal. And that in, that interaction saved the person's life just because she was nice to her. Oh my! And gosh. she never would have known that in her life. So there's, <laughs> it seems that this field of consciousness we're a part of registers all the experiences. It has a greater memory than we do and has greater intelligence and ability to access things, which is tough for us because we don't see the direct effects in our everyday life. But I'm glad you brought up this point because there seems to be ripple effects, like the little things seem to be the big things in the life review that people relive. And those of us who haven't had such a traumatic experience of almost dying, we're lucky to get to hear what they come back with to get some of these messages and we can integrate them, even though we haven't experienced it directly, or maybe we have in a past life and we just don't remember it, but we get to take the learnings and can apply them. The children's entertainer, Mr. Rogers, I just saw a quote. He said that um, he used to get very upset as a child watching a lot of uh, war and strife on television. And his mother, so wise, would say, look at the people helping. There's always people helping those situations, those tragic situations. So just focus on the people that help. So again, just bringing everything back to the world. I think that's just such sage advice. It's all this stuff is, is really complex and nuanced. That's what I'm realizing more and more. It's like not one or the other. It's the integration of all these points of view together. And it's like even the notion of compassion, which comes up a lot in the spiritual world, it's super important. But then compassion could get distorted where you're, you're told 
or you have a worldview that's so compassionate towards one thing, you start to ignore how you're not being compassionate in other ways, or you could compassion could be weaponized where, you know, there can be manipulation. So it's like all of these concepts, there's truth, but there's always a, it's like both. And like, yes, this is true. And then there's this other side of it where we have to be really discerning and not just accept everything. Um, so I'm, these are the ideas I'm still grappling with. Critical thinking. We all need to practice our critical thinking and discernment. I mean, that's something that spiritual teachers um, do talk about a lot and, and note that that's crucial in integrating the spiritual with, with the, the worldly realm. Yeah, it's one of those things that is easy to say, but in practice, it's much more complex because sure. it's difficult for us to know sometimes when we're being deceived or when we're just off in a certain way. Like blind mm -hmm. spots are very real. So to always try to check ourselves for that and have third parties who can check us is really important because it's easy to get in echo chambers, whether spiritually or otherwise, to look at all perspectives. And discernment, I'm, I'm realizing more and more, is critical to all this because it's like at, at the highest level, it is somewhat simple, it seems. Like it's about unconditional love. That's the message everyone experiences directly. But there's nuance between our physical existence and that ultimate state of unconditional love. They're in-betweens. And it requires discernment to steer us. Well, I'm probably going to say something very typical then. I still think that intuition is our best guide. Yeah. Really. And if we, we need to learn how to connect with it and stay connected with that. Um, I know for myself, I have not listened to my intuition many times. And um, it, it was just the, the worst mistake to make because I knew what I should have or could have done, and I didn't. So um, I, I just have uh, personal evidence that my intuition has never let me down. Right. And so what I find is that discerning intuition is a trial and error process because it's, sure. to start off, it might seem like something's an intuition, but it's actually not. Yeah. Um, and there's a story I tell in my second book, An End to Upside Down Living. I talk about the phenomenon of channeling, which you could construe as sort of like intuition. There was a woman who was getting messages from other beings and other dimensions and they were helping guide her life and apparently it was going pretty well and they told her at one point she should leave her job and she was like i'm not sure if i should do this it's not a, it doesn't seem like a good idea she ended up doing it and it turned out to be a horrible decision and then the beings she claimed started laughing and said you should kill yourself so it was like she was tapping into something but it wasn't she hadn't discerned what was a true intuition or something benevolent versus some of the darker stuff and that seems to be a microcosm of like so much of what happens in our individual lives, but also collectively. And I, so having studied medical Qigong, this is where I learned that being grounded and having a rooted spirit is mm -hmm. very critical. So through stillness practices, you know, I, meditation, it's a great word, but it does, uh, it's kind of loaded as well with cultural background. So I'll just say stillness. So if you can just sit in stillness um, and there's different practices you can do to ground yourself and stay in the world because um, a rooted spirit will be able to discern. So that's why I'm just promoting some sort of spiritual practice in whatever, whatever resonates with you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's important. It's almost like if, if the brain's an antenna, if we use that analogy, you can pick up the signal more clearly if you've done the right practices to get your vessel in tune. Yes. Um, and that's, I like those four categories again, the wisdom, selfless service, devotion, and energy, because to me, those are all types of attunement. Like you can attune, I think what you're describing is a form of energetic attunement, being still, because mm -hmm. then you're tapping into the clarity of 
the universe. But if you integrate that also with wisdom, then you might pick up on a thought and say, wow, I actually learned about X, Y, and Z from this other place. And that thought that comes that just came in doesn't line up with this, these facts that I know. And because of the wisdom, you might be able to discern better. And, you know, you could, you could take it with all these the four paths that they all integrate to keep us in a state where we can become more evolved and also discern better. Right. And then awareness is the key, the wisdom and, and learning as you're talking about, but we can encompass it and just call it awareness. So yeah. that will contribute to finding the appropriate practice, like you said, to, to align the energetics. Exactly. Yeah. This has been a great conversation, Mark. Um, you also have a podcast called Where Is My Mind? Available everywhere. And your books are available on Amazon. Um, they're also in audible form, right? Audiobooks? Yes, they're audiobook, Kindle, and hard copies, all four of them. Amazing. Good. Well, I hope everybody reads uh, this latest book. Like I said, the research is phenomenal. You've done your a great job, and um, it was a really great read. So thank you for doing that. Thanks for your continued work and um, and the update on your spiritual practice, because I think that was an, uh, also important to touch on, because as you acknowledged, um, it's evolved. It's changed over time. And um, at different points in our lives, we're going to be focusing on different things. So right now you're focusing in, in the wisdom area, and um, who knows what's next. So Hopefully we'll have you back and, um, and we'll see how things are going then. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Mark Gober. For more on Mark and to purchase his book, please visit markgober.com. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And be sure to visit wellnesscontinuing.com for spiritual tools and resources to elevate your heart-mind. And make sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.